So um, I want to start by reading a quote to you guys. Um, it's a quote from John Newton, which if you've heard me preach at all before or even heard me talk, it probably doesn't come as a surprise to you that I want to quote him. I quote him all the time. It's becoming like my thing where I reference Newton at least one time in every sermon. But anyway, he wrote... Um, he was, if, if you don't know who that is, he was an old English pastor in the um, 17th century, and he was renowned um, in uh, England for his godliness, for his wise counsel, for his just faithful ministry to, to many, many people over the years. Um, and he was known for the letters that he would write to people. And he wrote a letter to, um, what I'm going to quote is a, from a letter that he wrote as counsel to a de- depressed friend of his. Um, and as I read it, I want you to think about whether you would say these same things to a friend of yours who is discouraged or depressed or something like that. So Newton wrote this. You say you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness? Well, indeed, you cannot be too aware of the evils inside of yourself, but you may be, indeed you are, improperly controlled and affected by them. You say it is hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but also too low an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is wrong. So do you think you would say that to someone? My guess is probably most of us here would not say something like that to a friend who is discouraged and depressed and all those things. Um, Did it seem kind of blunt or tactless to you? It kind of did to me. Um, Maybe even a bit rude. I mean, (laughs) he's basically reinforcing his friend's sense of guilt and unworthiness. He's saying, oh, you feel guilty and worthless? Well, you are a pretty evil person, so like, that, that's kind of how his approach to this letter. Um, so we typically wouldn't counsel people this way today. I mean, I think that's because self-esteem is at the center of modern psychotherapy today. The theory is if you're depressed or struggling, it's because you lack self-confidence. So the goal today is to not to reinforce someone's self-deprecation, it's to bolster your positive self-talk. It's to make you feel more confident and esteemed in yourself. That's what we see in counseling today. That's how we're kind of taught to care for one another. But that's at odds with Newton's approach. His point is simply, is simple but contrary to our modern psychotherapy. He saw his friend's problem as a low view of Jesus, not his low view of himself. He did not want his friend to feel better about himself, like he was a better person. He wanted him to have a better view of Jesus. And I bring up that difference because Newton, that difference between Newton and modern therapy, because it gets to the heart of our passage this morning. We will be looking at Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28, and I'll actually be continuing in our all-sufficient Christ series. So, yeah, if you want to start to turn there, that's on page 821 in the Black Pew Bibles. 
But through this passage, I want you to see the wisdom in Newton's words. If we want to be joyful, content people, we don't need higher opinions of ourselves. We don't need to make ourselves better people. We need to believe and trust in the abundant grace that Christ offers us, even in light of our unworthiness. And again, that is the message of all the songs that we've already sung this morning. Um, But we'll see that in these verses this morning too. So with that in mind, if you haven't already done so, please turn to Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. Again, that's on page 821. Um, And follow along with me Um, as I read that out loud. God's word says this. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet... Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So let me say this up front. I don't have necessarily specific points for us to work through this morning. I had originally thought that I would have that. But I just want us to make our way through this story, I want us to look at it kind of verse by verse, see what Matthew is teaching us, what we can pull out of this, um, and just see what the Lord teaches us through it. And I want you to pay, though, specific attention to two particular themes. The first one is this theme of unworthiness in the woman. And the second one is this theme of grace be extended to her. And you'll see what, I, what I'm getting at as we go further through it. But those are key in helping us see the beauty and the sufficiency of Christ that is on display in this story. This is a story that's not often preached on. It's not a story that's necessarily easily understood. I know that in times in the past when I've studied this passage, it's been kind of confusing to me. I, I haven't understood why did Jesus approach the situation the way that he did. Um, but... This has been a passage that I've actually loved studying recently, which is why I wanted to preach on it. And so um, I want you guys to see the beauty that's here and the just incredible testimony of God's and Jesus' sufficiency for us in it. So with that said, let's start back at the beginning of our text and make our way through it. So the story begins by noting where Jesus is, and that's... Again, that's noteworthy. So look again with me at verses 21 and 22. It says this, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, 
sorry. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So both Matthew and Mark actually include this story in their gospel accounts. Matthew, it's in Matthew 15. In Mark, it's Mark 7. If you ever want to look there, you can kind of compare them. They're nearly identical. There's a couple um, points that are unique to each thing, but um, both of them mention that at this point in time, Jesus has gone to Tyre and Sidon. Um, And they both make sure to tell us that the woman in this story is not Jewish. Um, And these are significant facts for two main reasons. And this establishes the context for why this story is so powerful. The first reason why that's significant is that this is actually the first time in any of the Gospels where Jesus has actually left Israel. It's easy to forget that, but Jesus rarely left Jewish territory. Um, His primary focus throughout his ministry always was to reach the Jews, not the Gentiles. Now, his mindset, as we know if we look over the entirety of Scripture, that it was never meant to be only for the Israelites. Um, We see that because um, we have his great commission, which he he explicitly wants his gospel message to go out to the entire world. But we don't see ministry really expand to the Gentiles in any substantial way until after his resurrection and that great commission is given. The gospel was eventually meant to go to the world. But that was not until after Jesus ascended into heaven. In fact, if we look at Mark's account of this story, Jesus, it specifically says that Jesus went to Tyre and Sidon specifically to get out of the limelight. He's going there because he doesn't want to do ministry. He's going there to take a break. Um, as Mark says, Jesus entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So it didn't work. His goal was to take a break from ministry, to rest. He's exhausted. Um, didn't work, but that was his mindset for why he went here. His, his goal was not to do ministry to these people. So that's one noteworthy point. Second, not only is Jesus in Gentile territory, but like I said, this woman is a Gentile as well. Matthew notes that she is a Canaanite woman. Now, the gospel authors don't want us to think, because I think without noting that, we could be inclined to think that, yes, Jesus is in Gentile territory, but it's still close to Israel, so he's still probably talking to an Israelite. He's He's still probably talking to a Jewish woman, but they want us to make sure we understand this is not a Jewish woman. She is a Gentile. She is a pagan. She is a Canaanite, which is also noteworthy because Canaanites were the enemies of Israel. They, they were at war with each other frequently. And so those two points, having been communicated here, would say something loud and clear to the first century reader of this passage. According to the customs and culture of the day, this was not someone who would normally even be allowed to approach a Jewish holy man or rabbi. She was unworthy of that privilege in the the eyes of many people in that day and age. But she did, 
it was scandalous for her to approach and speak to Jesus like she did. And we, we kind of see how true that was in the way that the disciples reacted to her. So look with me again at verse 23. So we've seen Jesus has gone to Tyre and Sidon. This Canaanite woman is crying to him, have mercy on me, O Lord. Her daughter is um, oppressed by a demon. She wants help. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. This is a desperate mother, and she will stop at nothing to provide the help that her daughter needs. And his disciples, Jesus' disciples, don't like it. It's interesting that you see that Jesus doesn't say anything at first here. And I think, this is just speculation on my part, but in my mind, I think he's doing that because he wants to see how his disciples are going to react to her. Um, and he gets a reaction out of them. They beg him to send her away, even as she is begging him to help her daughter. They don't want her there. In their eyes, she is unclean. They're not there to care for people and to heal. Um, again, this is Gentile territory. These aren't the Jews, and so they want a break. They just want her to go away. And it almost seems like Jesus agrees with them, because look at, look at verse 24. It says this, Jesus does respond to them. He, answers, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So it almost seems like he's agreeing with them. He's like, I'm, I'm not here to care for those such as her. I am here to minister, to heal, to care for the, the Israelites. She's not one of them. But she overhears his words to his disciples and persists in asking him to care for her daughter. She does not give up. And we'll see why in a little bit. But look at her answer in verse 25. So she hears him say that to his disciples, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. So this is a mother, again, like I said, who's desperate to get help for her daughter, and she will stop at nothing to get it. But don't overlook the words that she's using here, too. Notice how she addresses Jesus in these verses. In verse 22, she calls him, O Lord, Son of David. And then again in verse 25, she calls him Lord again. And she's even kneeling before him as she's saying these things. This is huge because, Redeemer, keep in mind, those are Jewish terms that she's using. Gentile pagans didn't use words like these. They didn't acknowledge such titles as this. Their own society didn't believe in this Lord, this Messiah that was going to come and save the Jewish people. By using those words to describe Jesus, she was affirming that he was the promised Messiah who would come to save God's people. In her desperation, she was forsaking cultural and even religious norms and values because she believes that Jesus can and will save her daughter. She's submitting herself to him. And that brings us to the heart of the story 
Jesus turns his attention to the woman at this point, finally, and he speaks to her directly. And their exchange is fascinating. Look with me at verse 26. So she has just repeated, Lord, help me. And then Jesus answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, what does Jesus do when he finally turns his attention to this woman? He speaks in riddles. He gives her a metaphor, a parable. Now, what isn't surprising necessarily is that he did that. He typically spoke in parables to people other than his disciples. So it's not surprising that he's speaking this way to her. But what is surprising is that she actually understands this parable that he's telling her. And we see that if you look at verse 27. Verse 27 says, She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. So let's look at this again. In verse 26, he answered, he told her, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she, her response is not, What are you talking about? I'm not talking about bread and dinner and dogs. I'm talking about helping my daughter. She doesn't respond that way. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. This woman understands Jesus' parable in a way that even his disciples struggled to understand much of the time. She understands that the children in the parable are the Israelites and the dogs are the Gentiles. As Jesus said just before this, he came to minister to the Israelites first. She understands his meaning here. They will receive his message first, just as the children receive the food first in the parable. So for now, his focus is on the Jews, not the Gentiles. But even with that said, he leaves the woman an opening in the way that this parable is framed. And this is what I think is so so fascinating about this. The clue is in the word that he uses when talking about the dogs. So modern translations of this text can kind of overlook the subtlety here that Jesus is, is using because at first glance, it seems like Jesus is insulting this woman. That's how I've typically viewed this passage when he says these words, that he's just insulting her basically. I mean, who wants to be called a dog? Like, even in today's society where people treat their dogs like they're their children, we love dogs in society today. That was not the case back in New Testament times. Dogs were scavengers. They were always filthy. They were not loved like they are today. And the Jews would frequently call Gentiles dogs because they viewed them as unclean. And so that was frequently used as a derogatory term back then. But Jesus actually isn't insulting her here. The word that he uses when he says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, he's not insulting her saying, oh, you're just this dog, you're the scoundrel who doesn't deserve any food. The word for dog that he's using there is actually... a a term of endearment, kind of. It's a term of affection. It's, it means like a small puppy. And so Jesus is talking about dogs who might not get first pick of the food, 
but they would still get the food from the table. Once the family has done eating, they would give the puppies the leftovers. And so Jesus, in the term that he's using here to describe dogs, he's actually showing affection and concern for her. And she, she sees that, she understands that. He's not just insulting her. He's giving her an opening to understand the parable and actually use that to make a stronger appeal to him. It's so interesting. In other words, Jesus doesn't totally shut down the woman's request for help. It might kind of seem that way, but he's not doing that. He's not shutting down her request, and she notices that. She has eyes to see and understands the opening that he's leaving her. She jumps on it, and in her response, she says, yes, Lord, even the dogs, again, read that as puppies, cute little puppies that the family kids want to feed and, and everything. Yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. In other words, she's saying, I understand. I know I'm not an Israelite. I don't have a place at the table. I accept that. I know that. But there is more than enough of what you are offering for me to have some too. So please give me my portion because I really need it for my daughter right now. She's saying, I know you're going to feed the children, but I know you're going to feed the puppies too, and I'm one of them, so please give me my portion now. I need it for the sake of my daughter. That is what she's saying in this passage. This response is extraordinary, and even Jesus marvels at it. Look at verse 28. He says, then Jesus answered her after she said that, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. He praises her faith and gives her what she asked for. Her daughter is healed from the demon. So don't miss the significance of this woman's words and her faith. James Edwards, um, he puts it very well in his commentary of Mark's parallel passage on this story. So it's not a Matthew commentary, but it's Mark's commentary on this passage, the same passage. And he says this, the, the woman appears to understand the purpose of Israel's Messiah better than Israel does. Her pluck and persistence are a testimony to her trust in the sufficiency and surplus of Jesus. His provision for the disciples and Israel will be abundant enough to provide for one such as herself. That she answers Jesus from within the parable, that is, in the terms by which Jesus addressed her, indicates that she is the first person in the gospel to hear the word of Jesus to her. She understands him in a way that no one else had up until this point. And this isn't even some, an Israelite. It's a Gentile woman. Friends, hopefully the larger ramifications of this passage are beginning to come to become clear to you at this point. What we have here is a woman who is unworthy to ask anything of Jesus. She is not a Jew. She's not been practicing Jewish laws or customs. She's not righteous. She has no merit and is not entitled to anything from Jesus. The customs of the time would have forbidden her to approach Jesus as she has, and she knows all of this. 
She knows she is not worthy to ask him for this help. She isn't even one of the people who Jesus was focusing his ministry on. Yet, she is able to base her appeal to him on something far better and more persuasive than her own merit could ever provide her. She knows she doesn't have that merit. And so she appeals to him based on something far stronger and better than that. She goes to Jesus and bases her appeal, her appeal on what she knows of him, not herself. She knows that he is good, that he is righteous, that he is generous, that he heals, and that he is more powerful, more than enough, he has more than enough power to heal every single person on earth. Anyone that has a need could come to him and he has the power to meet those needs. He is sufficient for her and for everyone. She bases her appeal on the grounds that he has more than enough grace for her, not that she is worthy of it. Tim Keller puts it this way. Um, He says this in his reference to the Mark passage. He says this of the woman. She is wrestling with Jesus in the most respectful way, and she will not take no for an answer. I love what this woman is doing. In Western cultures, we don't have anything like this kind of assertiveness. We only have assertion of our rights. We do not know how to contend unless we're standing up for our own rights, standing on our dignity and our goodness and saying, this is what I'm owed. But this woman is not doing that at all. This is rightless assertiveness, something we know little about. She's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She's saying, Lord, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness, and I need it now. That is what is so beautiful in this passage, and that is why this passage is just such an extraordinary picture of the gospel. Friends, this is someone who understands what it means for Jesus to be our all-sufficient Christ. Think back to the quote that I read from John Newton earlier. When counseling his friend, he was not telling him, his friend, to have a higher opinion of himself. His problem was not his poor self-esteem, because the reality is none of us know how bad of sinners we actually are. Whatever we think of ourselves, we are worse than that. That is our reality every single day of our lives. So his problem was not his poor self-esteem. Rather, his issue was his low opinion of the person, work, and promises of God. And this is coming from someone who knows that better than almost anyone else. I mean, think If you don't know who John Newton was, before he was a pastor, he was a slaver. He traded in slaves. He sold, he bought and sold slaves. He did unbelievably heinous things that even by a non-Christian standard would be terrible. He was crude, he killed people, like he did some of the most reprehensible things that any of us could ever imagine. This is a man who, if he thinks back to the sins that he has committed, 
should be one of the first people to be able to say, like Paul, I am the worst of sinners. And yet he is able to say that and commend to his friend, your issue is not your low view of yourself. It's your low view of Jesus. However bad you think you are, you are worse, but that is okay because your hope is not found in being a good person. Your hope is found in the fact that you have a good savior who covers all sins and who allows you to come to him no matter what state you're in. What Newton was calling for was humility towards self and a faithfulness towards Christ. And the woman in our passage embodies both of those traits. It's what Jesus was drawing out of her by approaching the situation as he did. And it's what Matthew is commending to us by sharing this story in his gospel account. If you're like me, you probably feel like, you probably frequently feel like you can't approach God until you've cleaned up your act. Does that resonate with anyone else? You feel like God isn't going to give you the time of day until you're being respectful, obedient children. Like you've got to clean yourself up. You've got to get to yourself together before you can go to him and ask for his help, ask for his blessing. Shame keeps us from going to God in prayer. The irony is that we feel like we're not allowed to ask God for help in battling sin until we basically don't need his help in battling it anyways. We feel like we need to earn his attention and blessing. That he is not some kind, generous, loving father who longs to hear from his children, but that he is a stern disciplinarian who will catch us in any wrongdoing and say, see, you did that, so I'm not gonna give you this. We think it's so easy to think that that's who God is. So let me ask you that. What is that for you? What causes you to feel like you can't approach God even this morning? What is separating you from him? What's stealing your joy? Is it apathy? Sexual sin? Maybe bad finances? You feel like because you're not stewarding your life well that you can't approach God for help in it? Is it lies that you've told? Is it anger you have towards someone? Maybe God himself? Is it certain failures or inadequacies and weaknesses that you have? Or maybe it's just a generalized feeling that you've wasted your life up until this point and you're simply not good enough to go to him. You haven't earned his attention. Redeemer, Rest easy. None of those things need to separate you from God anymore. Those insecurities that you have, those sins that plague you, that shame that weighs you down, none of them are actual barriers between you and Jesus. They're barriers, they're illusions that we construct for ourselves because we want our own glory. We want to be able to go to God saying, I've earned this right and privilege to speak to you. But we can't do that. So we construct these illusions of ourselves that those things separate us from God, that we've gotta be in a certain place, that we've gotta be good before we can go to him. But we don't. If we wait till then, we never will be able to approach him. 
you can tear down those illusions this morning. You can tear them down every single day with your hope in the gospel message. He doesn't want you to wait to approach him until you're ready. Like I said, if you wait till then, it'll never happen. He wants you to approach him now in exactly the state that you are in. Jesus offers you healing. He offers you grace and mercy right now, just as he granted it to this woman. It isn't based on your own merit. It's not based upon your goodness. It's based upon his goodness and his desire to love you. We are not worthy to receive Jesus' help. Not a single one of us is. But that is okay because Jesus is gracious and powerful. He is sufficient for us. Put your hope in him, not yourself. Let your confidence rest in his promises and character, not your obedience. He offers grace abundantly and freely, and he has ample supply for every one of us. I've heard this phrase before. I've heard it said multiple times. Luckily, I don't think I've heard it here, but God helps those who help themselves. I've heard that phrase. Um, It's typically said to people who keep making the same mistake over and over, and it implies that you need to get your act together because God won't bless you until you do. Um, It's supposed to be a warning and kind of a kick in the butt for someone. It's like, come on, stop doing that that thing. Stop making that mistake. Make a better decision. But brothers and sisters, I I really hope I never hear, I I don't want to hear any of you ever say that phrase. Because if that were true, if that phrase were true, God helps those who help themselves, what hope would there be for any of us? You and I do things every single day that would send us to hell if we did not have Jesus. We make the worst decisions for ourselves each and every day. None of us help ourselves. No, that quote is not the gospel. There is no hope in a statement like that. The gospel is the message that God helps those who know they cannot help themselves. That is the joy, that is the freedom of the gospel. If there is nothing else that you take away from this sermon this morning, I want that to be it. That is what Matthew's story here teaches us, that Jesus came to help those who cannot help themselves, who know that who accept that reality and turn to him in dependence and faith. Friends, I stand before you as a horrible sinner. Each morning I wake up with lust in my heart, with tons of idols on my mind. I make decisions that are selfish. I don't care about other people very easily. I get angry. I behave certain ways ways that are oftentimes deceptive or just simply fake. In other words, I lie to people so that people think I'm a better person than I am. I'm insecure. I see myself as inadequate in almost every way. I do not see myself as someone worthy to approach Jesus 
ever. I'm ashamed of past decisions I've made, but guess what? I don't have to wait for those things to change before I can have joy and peace because I also get to wake up every morning knowing that I have a Lord and Savior who loves and cares for me despite all of those things being true. None of them actually separate me from God and none of them separate you from him either. He awaits me and you every single morning with eagerness. So trust in him. Trust in Christ. Trust in his sufficiency for you. Trust that he offers you forgiveness, love, mercy, and grace. He offers you his own glory and dignity. Stop trying to be, to be someone who deserves it. You will never succeed in that. You don't have to. Rest in him. Abide in him. And as a final word, don't just reflect on this for yourself. Who in your life needs to hear this? Who around you needs this hope and freedom? Who is trusting in their own works, whether maybe it's a certain degree that they're striving to attain, or a job, or a reputation, a certain lifestyle that they want to achieve? Who is trusting in their own works rather than Christ's completed work? Share the beauty and peace of the gospel with them. Tell them about this. Tell them about the hope and freedom that comes in Jesus Christ. Help them see that Christ's abundant grace eclipses all of our unworthiness. Please think about that for yourself and share that with others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I want to repeat some of the words that we sang earlier. Come, bring your failures. Come, bring your addictions. Lay them down at the foot of the cross. Jesus is waiting there with open arms. Father, thank you so much that that is true. Jesus, thank you for being so gracious with each and every one of us. Thank you for being a Lord and Savior who is not only abundantly gracious, but who is infinitely powerful and good to share his grace with everyone who wants it. Let that be the hope of every single man, woman, and child here this morning. Let that be our joy regardless of the state of our lives. Let that be the light and the darkness. And let that be the song on our lips that we not only sing together, but that we share with those around us. Thank you for the testimony of this Canaanite woman. Thank you for your gospel. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.